The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Spring Seminar, Moods and Medicine, Biblical Hope for Strugglers. All right, you guys are all awake. That's right. Don't worry about falling asleep. Honestly, because uh, I'll just blame it on the turkey that you ate at lunchtime. Or look at it this way. I, you know, I'm a doctor, and you know, what is the highest, highest compliment you could pay an anesthesiologist? Is <laughs> that he could just talk you. Yeah, I know it's not much, but it was, it was as, as it was, the joke was it was as much as I could afford for to pay for. My experiences with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, my the one that's notable came early in life. I um, had a, a aunt, Aunt Charlotte, a dear lady, and she called my mom up one day and said that she wanted to take my brother and I to a movie. And the movie was at the Indiana Theater in Indianapolis. It was a big theater and a nice place to go to the movie at the time. And um, my aunt showed up with her date. And she was in an evening gown and her um, date was in a tuxedo. And they hauled us off in a cab. And I, I don't remember what my mother dressed us up in. I just, I just remember we went. And I, uh, and I remember talking to my mom about this later. And... Um, the movie was Frankenstein, and I was seven, and my brother was five. We slept with our backs to the wall for a long time. <laughs> Dark closets didn't work for us. The, um, you know, I still don't like horror movies. You know, it's, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is a problem that many people deal with. Uh, both who are servicemen and servicewomen. I uh, work uh, two nights a month at uh, the, Mar- the VA hospital in Marion, Indiana, um, at least right now. I, I spend, a, usually a, it's a Friday night a couple times a month, and I uh, take care of the people who are sick on the psych ward and the people in the nursing home and the vets, and I, I take care of the people who come into the triage area for clearance to the psych ward and, and then the guys who are sick. The, uh, and I, it's more guys. Uh, there are a few women that I, we end up seeing, but mostly, mostly men. And it, uh, I go, I tell the guys I go because, one, they pay me. And two is that I did not serve in the armed forces. And it is the one time in my life that I get to pay people back that I owe. And we do. We all owe. We owe the uh, privilege of sitting here as free men and women to the men and women who served in the armed forces in our, in our stead. And of those I see, many are labeled with post-traumatic stress disorder. They cannot forget the things that they've seen or the routines that they learned uh, uh, to avoid being killed. It's, it's part of their being. It's part of their lives. Uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder is also part of the lives of those who've been uh, civilians, who've been abused physically and emotionally and sexually in child or adulthood. I I know of two children who um, dealt dealt with post-traumatic stress disorder. I think one was 10, the other was 8, whose parents very innocently decided to take them to a movie, and they took them to see The Passion of the Christ. And, you know, I... I thought it was an excellently made movie. I saw it, and I will never see it again. I, I, I don't want to watch it again. It was entirely too real. And I, and I can't imagine what, you know, the, the mind of the 10- and the 8-year-old had to process um, because while the, it looked entirely real, it wasn't, in, you know, in, entirely real. 
It's born from real experiences, like my friend, who was a um, uh, helicopter mechanic on the USS Roosevelt during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, he, uh, he said that one day they were working on the deck of the carrier, and aircraft carriers, of course, are uh, the decks are dangerous by definition. And um, he said, I turned to see my fellow sailor walk into the spinning propeller uh, of an aircraft. And he said, at that point, I was sprayed with his blood. And, and he says that to this day, if you sprayed water in his face from a spray gun, that he'll see it. He'll see the guy over again, poof, just like that. Um, I, 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 there are women who've been raped and who find it nearly impossible to relate to their husbands normally. I, I have one patient who can't do MRIs because she's claustrophobic, because when she was young, she was assaulted by a large man and held down. Um, now, not everybody who sees bad things or suffers them gets this. I, um, I can tell you I've seen all kinds of really bad things, you know? I mean, I've, I've, I've scrubbed and been in on a open, open heart surgery, which exceeds saw. You know, I, I never saw any of those movies. <laughs> I wouldn't go see them. But what I've seen is worse than that, and it doesn't affect me that way. Um, I, it, to me, it is a little bit like uh, what we saw early on in the HIV epidemic. You know, the, when, when, the, when the epidemic broke out in the 80s, uh, researchers were interested in anyone who had it they, because they were, this was, you know, this is like for, for medical science, this is the opportunity of, a, of the century. You know, it's like George Patton going to World War II. Uh, you know, this is what you studied for. This is what you were made for. And they were greatly interested in the people who had it and who unfortunately were dying, but they were far more interested in the people who had been exposed to the virus, who had the virus, but did not have the disease because they wanted to know what is it about you that makes you different? Why, why, what about your difference is it that makes you able to have this virus in your body but not die? And I would tell you that if, you, that if we're going to help people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, that really is what we want to know. We want to know why, for the people who have suffered the same kind of problems, the people who and for those who have had post-traumatic stress disorder and found their way out of it, what is different about those people as compared to those who currently live and struggle with it? There, there was a time at which I thought about titling this lecture Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder and the Sovereignty of God. And I resisted the temptation because I knew that it would cause me trouble. You know, that people would certainly misunderstand it, and then I would be thoroughly criticized for it. But I can tell you this, that in, in counseling, that the two are together, and that the people that I see who find their way out of post-traumatic stress disorder generally have found their way to the sovereignty of God, whether they understand the theology very well or not. They eventually get there. All right. Boom. So if we're going to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, probably the first thing we ought to do is get a good definition for what it really is. It is these things that we're going to talk about. If you have it for less than three months, it's acute. If you have it for more than three months, it's considered chronic. And what brings it on? Well, terrible events. 
The things in life that we all hope to avoid, rape, murder, combat, death injury, uh, natural disaster, train wrecks, car wrecks, anything in which people are, are, are injured and injured badly. The, then the threat of these things, uh, the threat of death or physical injury can also bring it on. Now, you know, I must admit that I should have known better. But when uh, my daughter was at uh, university in Virginia uh, that put on a Halloween house fright night, and I, we decided that we would take the family and go because we didn't have anything to do. It was Lynchburg, Virginia, and there really wasn't very much to do in Lynchburg, Virginia in the evening. And we took my six-year-old son. I, knew, I know I should have known better. And someplace in the middle of that, there was a lady who had a um, boa constrictor. Uh, it was a small one, you know, corn snake, the kind that the biology professors all have and then show, show the kids how to feed what happens when you put the mouse in the cage with, <laughs> with the boa constrictor. Well, that was about the size of it. And she was holding it like this. And we walk into the room and she kind of leans toward my son and my son responds by running up me, just running right straight up me to get away. I suspect that one of these days I'll be getting psychiatrist bills from that. Um, so just the threat. Uh, it also carries with it the uh, sense of fear or helplessness or horror. Uh, as a soldier uh, said in the, who was sitting in the truck behind uh, watched his fellow soldiers killed uh, by an IED, uh, sitting there watching your friends die and not being able to do a thing about it. It results in dreams. Oops. It results in dreams and flashbacks and thoughts and feelings like the event. The woman who struggles with being near men who look like the man who raped her. The old soldier who cannot be around. The folks who look like the guys who tortured him in the prisoner of war camp. Uh, men who take cover whenever the car backfires. They all hold this in common my, um, as my, uh, along with my friend, who's still to this day, 50 years later, you, you know, sees the guy walk into the propeller. Um, they respond to it like it's happening again, uh, and it can include delusions, not illusions, typo, hallucinations and flashbacks, like my marine friend who went hunting uh, after he got back from Vietnam, and he, it was in the fall, they were out hunting rabbits, and he's walking down the edge of the cornfield, and a hunter walks out of the woods and shoots at a rabbit. And he, my friend said before he knew what he was doing, he was down on one knee and had a beat on the guy. Came to himself, unloaded his gun, and never went hunting again. That was pretty smart on his part. Keep in mind that these are things that Marines and soldiers are taught in order to survive. It's like the guy I was talking to in the office the other day. He's a uh, policeman, and, he, and, I, and I was just looking at his gun because I'm thinking about buying one. But anyway, the, um, um, it was a Glock 40, and then he casually mentioned that it didn't have a safety. Of course, you know, I grew up in the notion that any gun that you owned ought to have a safety. And he said, oh no, if I, if I had to take the safety off, he'd kill me before I could shoot it. You know, the, these are the things that men are trained. You don't have time to think about it. If, if you think about it, you're dead. If you, if you don't think about it, well, you may kill somebody that you didn't mean to, but you will be alive. Um, all right, they respond to it like it's happening. Um, when they are in a situation 
that is uh, like the event. They may react like they're back there, they, and they'll avoid situations that remind them of it. Soldiers will act like they're in combat. Assault victims will act like they're back in the same situation again. As one soldier told me a couple weeks ago when I was giving this lecture, he said, all of you come into this room and you sit down and you're thinking about your Bibles, the preacher, and worship music. And he said, before I sit down, I've already figured out how I'm going to get out of the room. You know, he has plotted his exit strategy because that was what he was taught to do. It is something that he can't get away from. They may or may not remember the events or parts of them that brought this on. What's the pathophysiology? I wish we knew. The medical cause of post-traumatic stress disorder is uncertain. And the MRI PET scans in this case really are not nearly as helpful as we hoped. Uh, I can tell you this, that there was a fellow at the VA who two years ago announced that on a functional MRI PET scan, he could identify people who had um, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder as opposed to the general population. That was two years ago. I haven't heard a word since. Uh, You know, usually when that happens, it means they're really either doing a really big study to replicate it or they found out they couldn't replicate it, one or the other. Um, We have a very poor understanding of why people... Uh, develop post-traumatic stress disorder. It is not particularly a new idea. We've known about this civil, since the Civil War when the, um, uh, the um, technology of arms outstripped the, the technology of war tactics. You know, they, they, uh, they put rifling in rifles, which meant they could shoot straight for long distances, and then, but they still marched up the hill at you which meant that everybody marching up the hill died. That, that, was, that was sort of what, what it did. And so we saw that in the Civil War. Even with functional and MRI PET scanning, it's difficult to say what part of the brain is affected and why it's not functioning normally. And I can tell you that another confounding variable, uh, at least as far as the VA is concerned, is that the, um, uh, is the traumatic brain injury that people who are next to large explosions uh, 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 sustain, uh, which is really kind of interesting. It's interesting to hear the VA say that, you know, perhaps part of what is going on with PTSD has to do with traumatic injury due to, due to concussions from explosions because that's exactly what they said in World War I, where they called it shell shock. You know, they were shell shocked as, uh, as opposed to PTSD or, or uh, combat fatigue, which is what I think they called it during World War, World War II. Um, So that's a confounding variable. What are the medical treatments? Uh, There have been multiple medications used. Almost any medication uh, known to mankind ever used by a psychiatrist has been used to treat people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, and they've all been found pretty much wanting. That includes antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs, anti-epileptic drugs, atypical antipsychotic medications like Seroquel, Zyprexa, Risperdal, um, the uh, Haldol, uh, to some extent, I even see lithium carbonate. Now, the reason why I know this is because I see these guys on Friday night, and I have to read their, and I have to reconcile their medication lists. You know, so I see their diagnoses, and I see their medication lists, and, and these are the things that they're on. Sometimes beta blockers get used, like Enderol, the um, uh, stage fright drug, you know, where, you know, you know when uh, people have trouble standing up in front of large groups and talking, you know, they'll take 10 milligrams of Enderol before they go up and then their heart can't beat fast. So they, they don't perceive <laughs> that, that they're nervous or anxious about being up here. I, I, have, I had a fellow who I had to give him an annual prescription for it because he talked a lot in front of groups. And whenever he did, if he didn't have it, he just, he wouldn't do well. I guess that was a good way to put it. Um, 
The uh, current recommendations are for uh, to the use of an SSRI antidepressant and cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, the, uh, and in some cases, they give uh, people uh, an old antidepressant called prazosin, which, is, um, um, uh, which helps them with dreams. It does seem to help people who have uh, vivid nightmares from, from combat or from other causes, for, uh, from assaults. Um, the, my concern with all of it is this, as far as the, uh, the treatment is concerned, and that is right now the VA is in a panic over suicide. Uh, this year we're going to see more returning soldiers uh, and servicemen kill themselves, servicemen and women, uh, 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 suicide, than are going to be killed in combat. And, and they, they don't know what to say about it. Um, they, they are, they're really doing everything they know of to try to make, reach out and help people who even hint. You, hint. you walk into a VA hospital and say, I want to kill myself, I can assure you there, there are going to be all kinds of people standing around you wanting to do something uh, because they have a protocol a lot, you know, to operate from so that nobody, nobody ever leaves a VA hospital and kills themselves if, it's, if, if we can do anything about it. Now, my concern is that if you go back to, to Vietnam and to Korea and World War II, there were a lot of guys who had problems with post-traumatic stress disorder and got absolutely no attention. Uh, and, you know, my, my question is, is that today, the folks coming back, once they get labeled with post-traumatic stress disorder, they get all kinds of attention. And, you know, my concern is, is that the medicines if used in young groups, young groups of men and women, all carry with it black box warnings about suicide. And, you know, the question I have is, are we treating post-traumatic stress disorder aggressively medically, but at the same time doing something that results in people having more suicidal thoughts and perhaps more suicidal attempts? I think research in that will tell eventually and, and should be done, but that certainly is my concern about what we're doing to treat. Oh, there's desensitization with cognitive therapy, and then there's something I see on the internet every once in a while called tapping. I really don't know what it is, but I, it's sort of the kind of thing that since it doesn't include taking medicine and or and that, that it can't harm if if you know it, it, it it's not likely to have side effects. Um, the important recommendations, at least from the VA, are that uh, soldiers, servicemen, and women, uh, Marines. Um, should avoid isolation and return, and when they get back, they ought to return to work as soon as possible, and they ought to stay away from alcohol and drugs. You know, you would look at that list and you'd go, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, I, and I wouldn't criticize them for saying it. I think those are good recommendations. Now, what do the soldiers and sailors say about it? You know, the servicemen and women and the civilians. Well, the... Um, thing that I, I see that I think is, is, is most difficult is, uh, is isolation. Uh, now, um, and, and that is particularly true for National Guard and reservists. And the reason why it is is because when a National Guardsman uh, comes home, he, does, he is separated from his unit. Uh, they, they, uh, they do not stay in a corps. If you're with the 82nd Airborne and you've been deployed and you come home, you go to uh, Fort Bragg and you're with your unit. My Marine buddy said that he really didn't have trouble with post-traumatic stress disorder as long as he was in the Marines. It was once he left the Marines. He left the corps. He left the support of the group. So isolation uh, for reservists and National Guardsmen is a big issue. Uh, then 
um, uh, the um, in isolation for people who are pulled off the line. If you are in the field, if you are in the in the in the arena of war, and you develop post-traumatic stress disorder, and they decide that you cannot function with your unit, then you end up sitting back at the base doing nothing, and that is difficult. That's difficult for the soldier. Um, it includes a loss of purpose. Uh, most of these, most our soldiers are volunteers. And, you know, we have a volunteer army. The guys who are there signed up, and I would say the vast majority of them want to be there and view it as their life calling. And if they can't do it, it robs them of something that they have spent most of their life training for and becoming. Uh, And that's devastating to them. Then there's a sense of brokenness. As the one soldier I talked to, the way I I arrived at a lot of this, I sat down and I talked to a Marine. The Marine, I talked to the sailor, and I talked to the soldier probably about two or three hours for each of them, took lots of notes, and then sat down and and wrote... uh, well, an earlier lecture. And the soldier said that, what he said was, studs don't break, and I'm broken, and I'm broken in a way that can't be fixed. That, that was what he said. The um, flashbacks, the, um, the, the Marine complained of flashbacks, the, the uh, sailor talked about dreams, and the, the Marine dealt with his sleep disturbances, uh, by drinking himself into a stupor every evening. He did that for a really long time. Couldn't sleep at night, so he just drank until he passed out. Um, they also struggle with hypervigilance, um, hyperreactivity and startle response. Uh, the uh, Marine said one day his sister was hiding behind a door, and he walked by, and she jumped out and went boo. And he said before he knew it, he had her up in the air, up against the wall with one hand and his elbow in her neck with the other, and he kind of came to himself, and then he suggested that she shouldn't do that again, <laughs> as if she didn't get it, you know. Um, and again, this is what they are taught to do. Um, they struggle with shame. Uh, those who've been pulled out of the line and cannot go back would struggle with the shame that they, uh, they were trained for something and they can no longer do it. Uh, They struggle with guilt because they're alive and their fellow soldiers are not. Um, I see anger, um, uh, particularly um, among, uh, you know, anger for the fellows who came back from Vietnam who went over and left 70,000 of their fellows. And then the, the politicians turned around and gave it all away. You know, we could have had a communist Vietnam, which is what we have right now, and never have spent one dollar or lost one soldier. And that's what a lot of the guys think. And I can assure you that right now, the guys coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan feel, can hear the hoofbeats. You know, they're they're watching what's going on in Washington, and they sense that it could very well be before it's all over with, they'll be thinking about their friends and, and their fellow soldiers who died, and now it, there, there doesn't seem to have been a really good reason for us to have been there. And don't misunderstand me. I think there was a really good reason for us to go there. It's just if, if you give up everything that the soldier fought and died for, th- you take away the, the reason why they should have been there in their eyes. Then they struggle with fear for safety and uh, depression over loss. 
over sadness over loss, as we said in the first hour. Civilians, remarka- oops, yes, civilians remarkably so suffer with all the same kinds of things. Uh, they are fearful for their safety of further attacks. They worry about the effect on their life as to what has happened to them. They are angry over it. Uh, they become depressed or sad over the losses that they suffer as a result of it. They also lose purpose and, and struggle with their victim status. They can struggle with sleep disturbances and flashbacks and reactivity just the same. I think it really gets big for them when it's struggling with relationships, marital problems, sexual dysfunction. Maybe some of the eating disorders we see are born out of post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder response to abuse that occurred to them. And then uh, also we see substance abuse as a big uh, factor and shame and guilt as well. Now, the question is, can all this be avoided? Well, I don't think that the problems can be avoided. Uh, you know, it's, I, I think the thing to keep, always keep in mind is that when you are counseling people who have post-traumatic stress disorder is not to jump to conclusions in either direction real quickly. I like Proverbs 18.13 where it says, you know, a fool gives an answer before he hears the whole of the matter. Um, I would say that it is... Um, most likely that the vast majority of people who struggle with this had absolutely nothing to do with the events that set them on their journey. And, you know, I think most of them were there because of choices that other, other people made. But, as, but at the same time, you, you can look at it and you can say that uh, as we struggle through it, people who struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder uh, while they may not have contributed to it in any way to the original event, that doesn't mean that they may, they may or may not make it worse by the way they respond to it. Uh, when I think of, of someone in the scriptures that stands as a good example of the person who's like the HIV victim, the, folk, the person who got to have all the problems but didn't end up with the disease, I think of Joseph. Joseph is a, is, is a very good example for just exactly that. Joseph was a young man of good character, and I would tell you that he did nothing to cause his problems. Uh, he, did, he, didn't, um, he didn't do anything that should have resulted in him having to face the things that he faced. I, you know, and I, I tell you, I've heard folks preach this a lot of ways. I, I remember sitting and listening to one guy try to say that the reason why Joseph was in the trouble that he was in was because he was a spoiled brat. And, you know, and that is evidenced by the fact that his father doted on him and gave him the coat of many colors. But, you know, then I look at that and I say, well, can you show me that in the text? Can you, can you show me in the text how, you know, and then I come up with that part that Paul says about not going beyond what's written. Uh, there's nothing in the, in the text that would impeach Joseph's character. And, and instead, I would say there's much that commends it. When I counsel individuals who struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and the events that lead up to PTSD, I'll often ask them to read Genesis 37 through 50, at least all the parts about Joseph, and I'll ask them to answer three questions when it comes to Joseph and his situation. The first is, is your life worse than Joseph's? I think that's a big deal. Is your life worse than Joseph's? And I can tell you this, universally, I've never had anybody come back and tell me that their life is worse. Because you know, if you read all the things that happened to Joseph, you know that he went through just about everything bad that anybody could go through um, and still lived to tell about it. Um, but I've had a lot of people tell me that my life is just as bad. And you know, I wouldn't argue that with them. And then the next question I had asked them is, then tell me how did Joseph respond to it all? 
And then finally, how was God acting in the process through all of it? I I can tell you that Joseph consistently dealt with his problems in a godly way. And And I would also tell you there's a trap involved in that. And that you should approach that story with great caution. You can say, one, you could approach this and say that Joseph was a, a good man. And that when he was faced with difficulty and confronted with difficult choices, he chose to do good. And as a result, a good God blessed him for it. And if you do that, you'll add to the burden of the person that you're trying to help who struggles with post-traumatic stress disorder. And why? Why would you add to it? Because we aren't what? We're not good. Joseph may have been good, but we're not good, are we? No, no, we're not. And, and I don't make good choices all the time, do you? No. So, you know, immediately you've set this person in, in a, in a, in a, at a disadvantage. Or you can say that Joseph is an amazing example of the grace of God. You know, and to me, that's the, actually the best interpretation. You can say that he's an amazing example of the grace of God working in the life of a sinful man in order to do an amazing thing. And let's look at it that way. Oh, Joseph consistently dealt with his problems in a godly way. In Genesis 37, that's the place to start. In those first five verses, Joseph's brothers sinned against him. Why? Why did they hate him? What was it about Joseph that they hated? What was it that started it? Hmm? They were jealous. Why? I think I heard somebody say the dream. Yeah. And then his father doted on him. What was the dream? Why was that such a problem? <laughs> you know, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were going to bow down to him, right? Oh, yeah. They, they liked that a lot. And probably because most of them had seniority. Or at least they thought they did. Why did Jacob like Joseph? Because he was dependable. Yeah, he would actually go do. And if you read the history of the rest of the brothers, they are a motley group, aren't they? Yes, they're just not very good people. That was the truth of the matter. Their lives bear it out. But Joseph was dependable. And so he's, he's off to do what his dad has told him to do, which is go see what your brothers are up to. And as, and as he's walking up, what are they saying? Lo, the dreamer cometh. Yes. And then they start having this discussion. And I've never seen the movies Wayne's World, but it sort of reminds me, I saw the spot where they're in the bar and the, with the bikers, and they offer to kill them, and then they say, no, 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 no let's, let's break their arms first, and then we'll kill them. And then, no, 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 let's set them on fire, break their arms, and then we're going to kill them. This is sort of the scene here. You know, the, Joseph is walking up, and they say, well, let's, let's kill him. And then they say, oh, no, it's too close to lunch. Uh, let's, we'll tie him up, and we'll throw him in the pit. And so they do. They And then they sit down to eat. You talk about cold-hearted people. You know, it's like they're going to kill their brother, but they want to eat lunch first. And while they're eating lunch, well, up comes the uh, caravan, doesn't it? Yes, and uh, providentially provided by God. And, And so what do they do then? They take their brother, their own flesh and blood, and sell him. Sell him off in into slavery. And I can assure you that 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 I think the account says that Joseph was pleading with them. While, while they were hauling him off and handing him over. And what was his response? He ends up working in Potiphar's house, doesn't he? And how does he respond to it? 
He just goes to work, just works hard. Now understand this, the deck was stacked. This is grace, because everything that Joseph touched, God blessed. This isn't about Joseph being a good guy, working really hard, doing good things, and Horatio Algering his way to the top of the power structure in Egypt. That is not what this is about. This is God taking a man and taking him through adversity to put him someplace where he needs and wants him to be for a specific event. And if you start looking at it like that, then, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder begins to be uh, understandable in a way. No, so Joseph... Um, Works really hard, and Potiphar makes him his chief household steward, and somebody else notices him in the house, don't they? Yeah, it gets into chapter 39, and we see the first recorded event of sexual harassment in the workplace. <laughs> yes, that's what it is, isn't it? Yes, day after day. Yes, come lie with me. It's not fly with me, it's lie with me. That was what she, every day, and he kept saying what? No, how can I sin against God and my master? And eventually then he is, um, uh, she yanks his coat off, he jumps out the window, she accuses him of rape, and he is thrown in prison. How many of you here think that uh, Potiphar actually believed that Joseph was trying to rape his wife? Now, this is my interpretation. This is a little bit outside the, the edge, but, but I, don't, I don't, what? I think you would have chopped him up and fed him to the fish in the Nile if he actually thought. I, I think Mrs. Potiphar had done this before. You want to bet? Yeah, I bet you Mrs. Potiphar had done this before. And what do you think that Potiphar was really mad about? <laughs> he was having to throw in prison the best household steward he ever had. Now, that's just, just the way I look at it. But at any rate, uh, so uh, instead of being chopped up and fed to the fish, um, Joseph ends up in prison. And, and what does he do? What does, he, what does he do, folks? He just goes to work. You know. That's all he does. And, and again, God blesses it. He becomes the chief trustee in the prison. And again, it is, this is by grace. This is God acting in Joseph's life because God wants Joseph in prison. Yes, sovereignty. You know, you're beginning to catch the drift here, aren't you? Sovereignty. God using bad things in our lives things that we would certainly call bad. I guess throwing in prison wasn't exactly great, was it? And so God blesses everything that Joseph touches, and he's running the prison, and here comes the baker and the butler. And they get thrown in prison, and they have dreams, and, you know, the, Joseph interprets the baker's dream and, and the butler's dream, and he doesn't ask the baker to remember him when he gets back to work because <laughs> the baker is not going back to work. And... and and the butler, of course, he says, when you get back up there working for Pharaoh, would you please tell him I haven't done anything deserved to be here and get me out of here, please? And, of course, what happens? Yeah, he forgets him. Yeah, just as soon as he's back doing his job, he forgets all about him. And until, because it wasn't time yet, was it? It wasn't time yet. And it became time the, the night Pharaoh had a dream. And, and, he, and he dreamed, and, and he couldn't interpret it either. And, um, but about that time, the, the butler remembers, doesn't he? Yes. The butler remembers Joseph. He says, nobody else here can interpret that dream, but I know somebody who can interpret the dream. He told me I was going back to work, and he said, you were going to hang the baker, and you hanged him. And in two hours, Joseph becomes, he goes from being the trustee in the prison to being the prime minister of Egypt. Now, how likely is that? 
think about it. How likely is that? How likely would it be for there to be an Israeli citizen, Jewish, to be the prime minister of the Muslim Brotherhood, Egypt, right now, that we're sending $250 billion to support when we can't afford to do tours at the White House? Um, Anyway... um, You guys are awake, aren't you? That's good. You got that. Um, the, uh, it's not, is it? No, no Jew's going to be the prime minister of Egypt right now. And do you know how much the Egyptians liked the Jews back then? They didn't. They despised the Hebrews, didn't they? Yes. That, that, and so anyway, um, um, so again, we see what? We see God sovereignly acting to bring Joseph to the spot that he wanted him to be, to be for a specific purpose. And of course, what was that specific purpose? It was so it was his family would live. Tell me, where would, where would, what would have happened to Joseph and where would he have ended up if his brothers liked him? Yes, that's it. Joseph would have just starved to death with the rest of them. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it was God sovereignly and providentially taking him through. How do you get the Jewish boy to be prime minister of Egypt? First you... Uh, you give him a dream and his brothers hate him. They tie him up, offer to kill him, throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery. He gets accused of rape, thrown in prison, forgotten about. And then God moves him one step further and he is prime minister of Egypt. And I can tell you that Joseph came to understand that process. I don't think he understood it on day one, but I can tell you he understood it when his brothers showed up. He did. And out of that comes Genesis fifty twenty. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And out of that is born Romans eight twenty eight and 29. Um, Joseph came to understand the sovereign role of God, the gracious sovereign role of God in his life, and to embrace it. And so did my friend Charles, the guy who was on the boat. Um, he told me another story about another sailor who, who was called Panelpus. The uh, pilots on aircraft carriers all have handles. I, I had two uh, cousins who uh, live, lived in the state, um, and Navy men and who flew off aircraft carriers, and the first one was called Hodge. His name is Hodges, and it was H-A-D-G. That was his handle. But when they got to flying over in the Middle East, they had to change it because the, they didn't like the idea that he was handled Hodge. And then my other cousin, who now is a congressional attache for somebody in Congress, a lieutenant commander who uh, flew F-18s, they called him Beaky. Beaky. Been everywhere, knows everything. I... Don't think they, yeah, I don't think they meant it nicely in some ways. But uh, he's a godly young man, too, and I'm proud of him. Um, anyway, my, my friend Charles, uh, the pilot that everybody on the boat liked, uh, was called Panel Puss. And, and, and that was okay. They give you the handle, and, you know, you, you act like you like it. And the reason why they called him Panel Puss was because he'd wrecked his plane a couple times, and on one of those occasions, his face hit the instrument panel, and he had scars to show for it. So they called him Panel Puss. And on a given day, Panel Puss was taking off, catapulting off the deck of the plane, and as the catapult fired, his landing gear collapsed. And it appeared... He ejected. That was the only way he was going to get out alive. And he ejected, and for a while, it looked like he would. His, he went up in the air his, air, his parachute opened, and it looked like he was going to come down on the boat. But instead, the wind blew a little bit, and he went over the edge. 
And when he went over the edge, he hit the water, got wrapped up in his parachute, and he drowned. And my friends had to stand there and watch because there wasn't anything he could do. He said, I could have jumped in and we'd have both drowned. And, 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 and he, it was that loss that haunted him. Well, my friend became a Christian in the interim, and that's another story I haven't got time to tell you. It's a good one, though. But they were practicing dropping nuclear depth charges in the Gulf of Mexico during the Cuban Missile Crisis because that was the only way you could bust the hull on a Russian nuclear sub, and the Russians were down there with their nuclear subs wanting to threaten to blow us up. And so they would go out and drop buoys in the Gulf of Mexico just like they were dropping nuclear depth charges. And there'd be a frogman down on the water, and he'd hook the wire back onto them, and they'd haul them back up and drop them again. And he said he was, one day he had read uh, Hebrews 9.27, and he said, I looked down in the water, and there was the frogman. And it was like, it was Panopus all over again, he said. And he said, it was then that, that it was just like God was talking to me. And I, what I heard was Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man wants to die. And then he said, it was his time, it will be okay. And that, what my friend got over, the post-traumatic stress disorder associated with that, and with the guy walking into the propeller, by, uh, by agreeing with the sovereignty of God in somebody else's life, that was, that, was the, that was how he made his way out of it. He was willing to accept the sovereignty of God in another man's life in the same way that Joseph was willing to accept the sovereignty of God in his life. I can tell you this about Joseph, though. I don't think he was saying on the day when they threw him in the hole that you meant it for evil and God meant it for good. No, I, I don't think that was what was coming out of his mouth. It took him 20 years to get there. 20, 20 years. And I, and I always look at that and I say, well, you know, this isn't going to be, post-traumatic stress disorder isn't going to be six one-hour sessions and you're done. No, it will be a much longer, a much longer process. Um, all right. Now you tell me, what got Joseph through that? I'm not going to change the slide because the answer is in the next slide. What do you think got Joseph all the way through that? What? God did, yes, but what? You ever watch 24? None of you ever watched 24? Ah, oh, I watched every last episode. <laughs> and, and you tell me, how did you know that Jack Bauer was always going to be back next week? What? Well, he was the star, but there was the previews. Right? Yes, there was the previews. Jack, I can remember that last scene in that one year when the Chinese had Jack Bauer and they had him on the boat, you know? And it looked like Jack was, it was all over with, you know? And I just said, pity the poor Chinese. <laughs> you know, they're taking the one-man destroyer army with them to their country. What worse could happen to them? Um, so what was that like with Joseph? Joseph had what? He had the preview. What was the preview? It was the dream, yeah. So on the day he got thrown in the pit, had he ever seen the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bow to him yet? No. Uh uh-uh. uh. On the day he got sold into slavery, he had ever seen the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bow to him yet? No, no. And when he went to prison he hadn't seen it yet. And when when did he see it? On the day his brothers showed up and he walks in. And they're wanting to buy grain, and they see the guy who they think might be Pharaoh because they haven't seen him in 20 years, and he's dressed funny. Uh, Compared to Hebrew, he was dressed funny. And uh, what do they do? What do they do right then? They bowed. 
Yes. So the dream got him through. Now, you tell me, what do we have like that? We have all kinds of things, don't we? What about 1 John 3, 2? What does it say? Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Yes, we have that promise. 34 and a few scars. It doesn't mean much to some of you because you're not 34 yet, but when you get to be 60, 34 with a few scars will look mighty good, won't it? Yes, that's right, yeah. We have that promise. We have the promise that God will, in the same way that he took Joseph, take us through our difficulty, our situation, our problem. All right. So that's what got Joseph through. Now, what things could we address that will help people who are struggling with the sadness that's associated with it? The dream, yes. It's back to John 11 that we talked about earlier this morning. I found John 11 to be very helpful when talking to people who are sad, sorrowing, and have suffered loss. There, there, you know, there, isn't, there isn't much of a greater loss than what Martha and Mary suffered and what Lazarus suffered. Lazarus dies. Martha and Mary lose their, their visible means of support. That was a big deal back then. They were unmarried women and their... And their brother, who had organized and managed the family business, um, was gone. And I've told that, I've worked through that story from the beginning of John 11 to the end of it with people, and, and I find it universally comforting for them to know that Jesus cared about Martha and Mary and Lazarus and that Jesus cares about them right now. Right now, Jesus cares about them. I think another good place that you can go to look that does the same thing is um, John chapter 9. You know, why would God allow a good man to suffer um, as, the, the, it, as, as he does? Well, it's the guy at the side of the road, isn't it? And he was blind. And the disciples, they, you know, they are the masters of class. They, uh, they walk up and say, uh, you know, Lord, Master, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, he was blind. He wasn't deaf. Was he? No, he was not deaf. He hears all this. <laughs> and what does Jesus say? It's neither. Neither this man nor his parents. But he was born this way so that I could heal him and God would be glorified. You know, this man got to sit for who knows how many years in darkness waiting for Jesus to show up just to heal him. Just to heal him. And the first person he saw was probably Jesus. Yeah. Um, the uh, people who suffer need our compassion, but at the same time, they need our sense, they need a sense of direction, or they wouldn't be talking to us. And that's where I get to the part in John 11 where I ask them if they want to leave the graveyard. You know, I, I know you're struggling with this, I know you're sorrowing the loss, and the loss is real, and I, and I sorrow with you, but do you want to move on? You know, that, 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 that becomes the big question. Um, then, what's the next thing that they may need? Well, you know, a good number of them may need simply to understand the gospel, like my friend Charles needed to understand the gospel. Um, I would say that the majority of people who have post-traumatic stress disorder are uh, 
uh, in the military and outside the military are unsaved. And, and you, you should not misunderstand that I mean anything by that to indicate that people who are unsaved are more likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder than saved people because I, I can't say that and I don't think it. Uh, what it means is that they're simply more unsaved people, period. And, and because of that, many of these people will eventually need to hear the gospel. They'll need it. I believe that biblical counseling isn't of much help to unsaved people. Uh, you know, I will talk to people for a really long time if they'll come and listen and if they'll actually do the homework. And every time they come, though, they're going to get part of the gospel, you know, and I'll keep recycling it until they get it or they get tired of it, one of the two. And one of the two will happen. You know, eventually they'll get it or, or they'll get tired of it. And then I can tell you that the saved people need to hear the gospel as well, don't they? Yeah, they do. I really like the Gospel Primer. I've become a fan of the Gospel Primer by Vincent because I really like the way uh, that he works through all theological statements. You know, you start at, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth, and then you end up where it says, and Jesus said that he will enable me not to worry because he told me not to. You know, and, 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 but there are about 10 different theological statements in between those, those two things. I, I think that is a great pattern. People who um, struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, above all, need to know that God intends to help them through it by grace in the same way that he picked up Joseph and moved him, didn't he? Didn't he pick him up and move him? That's exactly what he did. He picked him up at point A and took him all the way to the prime ministership of, of, of Egypt. And for only one reason, and it's what Joseph says at the end, to save these many lives. There's a big famine coming, and you're going to eat, and some people aren't and particularly those back in the country where you came from. Then, folks with post-traumatic stress in order need purpose. I can remember the one soldier who came back who, um, who was separated from his unit in the field and, uh, then, and then came home and decided that he, he, it was time to re-enlist. He'd been in nine years, and he had two small children, and he decided he didn't want to go back, you know? And for a long time, he sat around. Not long, but long enough. And... And he, he struggled for a while. I know he struggled. And he said he got better the day he got a job. That was the day he got better. You know, the day he got a job, it, it, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a guy thing, but it was new purpose. It was a new purpose in life. And, you know, I, I look at folks who are struggling and have lost their sense of purpose. I, you know, it is our, uh, in biblical counseling and in the church, it's our, our job to help them find it again, to point them in, in the direction then they also need to change their motive. Their motive needs to change from being safe, which is what the motive is for um, the uh, majority of the folks who struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, the, the guiding light is I want to be safe and I will arrange to be safe. And it needs to cease to be safety and it needs to become glorifying God with my life no matter what happens to me. Um, uh, anything less than glorifying God as a goal becomes idolatry. And it is not, and it's never logical. I always say that. Idolatry is never logical uh, in, its, in its pursuit, and it's never blessed in its outcome. Then they need to trust. And, you know, the best place I know to take people who are struggling with trusting other people and trusting God is Romans 8, and that's where I take them. Romans 8, just the whole chapter. You know, and, and you know, folks who come back and they, and they feel condemned because of what happened to them and the way that they've responded to it, they need to know what verse 1 says. And what does it say? There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. No condemnation. 
That's how God sees us. It doesn't make any difference how the rest of the world sees us or even how I see myself. And I guess uh, you know, the, the real struggle for many of them is to get them to the point where they're willing to agree with God about what God says about them. Um, it's not a matter of self-esteem. It's agreeing with God with what God says about them in the Scriptures. And here it says there's no condemnation. And then in verse 12, it, it, it says that we're not under obligation to continue to live according to the flesh. And I can look at them and say, you do not have to spend the rest of your life doing this. You really do not have to spend the rest of your life having your life conducted by a syndrome or a disorder. You can grow and you can change. That's verse 12. And then, verse 15, what's it say? Verse 15, we've not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but the spirit of adoption whereby, as sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Yes, we do not have to live a life subject to fear. And then verse 16, we are not tolerated. We are not put up with. We are his children. You know, we are accepted in the beloved. And then verse 18, what we suffer in this life, the struggles that we suffered as a result of, that have resulted in me struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, what does it say about them? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. It will be worth it. The struggle that we face will be worth it. And then verse 26, where it tells us that the Holy Spirit is actually up there right now interceding for us when we haven't got enough good sense to know what to ask for. In the middle of our struggle, in the middle of the time that we were drowning, it is the Holy Spirit who's up there right now at the right hand of God putting in our request. And then finally, 20, not finally, 28 and 29, the assurance that God intends to take this awful thing that happened to us and use it for good. Good for his glory and, and for his purpose in our lives, which is that we would become more like Christ. And then, yes, it's not much, but I should have changed it. Um, and then, verses 31 and 39, we're never alone, ever. We're not alone now. Even if I was the only person in the room, I wouldn't be alone. I've often said that if I die on the end of the longest hallway in the dirtiest nursing home on the face of the earth, I will not die alone. Even if they don't find me until the next day, will I? No! The Holy Spirit is there, and the angels of God will be there to conduct me into his presence. And from that, we also see that God is on our side. You know, who can be against us if God is for us. So, they need to trust. They need to trust God because God is trustworthy. Then, verse 5, uh, rather, point 5. Yes, moving on. That was what my friend in the Marines said. It was from Philippians chapter 3. He, he was reading his Bible and he stumbled into Philippians and he said, when I got to chapter 3, I understood what I needed to do. And what did he need to do? He said, I needed to forget what was behind and I needed to reach forward. I needed to look forward and reach forward to the things that were ahead for the glory of Christ. And that's, exact, that's exactly what he did. Then, time. I always say that everyone gets their own 42 chapters when it comes to this. Um, uh, and, and that's Job. I, I've always said that uh, of my favorite books in the Bible, that... Um, um, does this really go all the way to 245? 
Yes. Okay, good. I am so far ahead. Is that right? Yes, okay. But we'll, we'll do questions. Don't, you can't have my time. <laughs> I'm not done yet, and you know you can't have it. Um, the, um, I've always said that my favorite book in the Bible is the Gospel of John. It is. It was where I first saw Christ, really saw him in chapters 14 through 18. And I've always said that my least favorite book in the Bible is, yeah, it was Job. Not hardly anymore, but at least for a long time it was. Because, you know, Paul told us how to rejoice in how many chapters? Four. Yes, four. He got the message across, didn't he? Yes. And and then Job at 42. It just goes on and on and on and on. Yes. But then I figured out one day that that everything that we know about suffering, we know because of Job. And you know what? I don't know that Job ever knew any of it. There are only two things that Job actually knows. He didn't know that God had a limit on his suffering, that there was a reason for it, an absolutely good reason for it, that um, there there was a purpose for it, that... um, that there was a limit on it, that, um, that he would be rewarded in the end. Um, he, he knew none of those things. And I don't know that he ever did. It doesn't say. But I do know at the end he knew, knew a couple of things. It's in verse 2. It took him 42 chapters to get there, but he said, God is all-powerful and he can do as he pleases. And that was the end of it. I always say that after I thought about it a long time, I decided that I liked Job and I repented in sackcloth and ashes. (laughs) Uh, So everybody gets their own 42 chapters, folks. Uh, These people have to work through this. And it's our job to go through it with them and to love them and and work with them through it. Worry, uh, uh, rumination, no. The fear drill, that's next. Yes, the fear drill. This is good. You have to get your pencils out. Are you ready? This is what my friend did after a while of every time he got water sprayed in his face seeing this guy uh, walk into the propeller. He said that he, what he started doing was the first thing he would say when he saw the vision was, this vision is not real. That's the first thing he said. Then he would say, next, the vision will not hurt me. That was the second thing he would say. The third thing he would say was, whatever God allows into my life will be for my good and his glory. And then he would say, perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4.18. And whenever he saw that guy, he would say it. And he said, after a while, he says, I still see him, but all the emotion's gone. You know, initially it was terrifying every time, but after a while, the emotion simply drained out of it because he responded to it every time with, oh, those kind of true biblical propositions in Scripture. Then, dealing with worry. I think Philippians 4.4 is a great place to deal with worry. It's not just, yeah, 4, 1 through 10. Uh, I haven't got time to tell you about it, but um, you can go to gracecouncil.com. That's another website where I have stuff, and there are two hour-long lectures in 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 a pattern that I've used for years to help people deal with worry. But it is a big thing for uh, people who struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, how to change their thinking on a, and their actions on a biblical, in a biblical way, then they will need to learn about forgiveness, won't they? Yes, they need to, to learn um, that, um, 
the how and why and when they ought to forgive someone because they will have people that they need to forgive because of what happened to them. Um, the, um, I, I, you know, the best book I, that I read that settled my thinking about it was from Forgiven to Forgiving. It's Adam's book, From Forgiven to Forgiving. I, I, I don't spend a lot of time talking about people forgiving themselves because I, I don't think it's necessary. Uh, nor do I believe it's profitable. But I do believe that they do need to learn to agree with the fact that if they sinned and God has forgiven them, that they have to agree with that. And that when they do so, the guilt that they, when they ask for forgiveness and God forgives them, that the guilt that they bear has been settled in Christ and that they don't need to continue to carry the burden. They need to have a Romans 12, 3 accurate assessment of themselves as opposed to, to, to self-esteem. And then they do need to forgive others um, when the time is appropriate. Then, these folks need to be involved in Christian service. Just like I said earlier, they need to, uh, be, serv- they, they need to be invested in serving others. And uh, I can remember um, where I actually got that. It's in the book, but um, I did tell you I, was, I have a book, didn't I? <laughs> yes. Um, the, no, I didn't say that. Shameless self-promotion, yes. Um, the, um, the where I got that was from George Crane. George Crane was a physician and a psychologist in Illinois, and he wrote uh, a bunch of books, uh, wrote a psychology textbook that was used for years, and he wrote in the Indianapolis Star. He had a syndicated column for years. And one day he wrote about how he had talked to an old doctor, an older physician, about what he did for people who showed up in his office depressed. This was long before there were any medicines for it or, or any, anybody knew very much about it. Uh, and, and what the old doc said was this. The first thing he did was he would make them read two, cha- a, a cha- two chapters a day in the, uh, no, it was one chapter a day in the Gospel of Luke. And the reason why he chose Luke was because... Well, Luke was a doctor, yeah. He patron saint of physicians. And, uh, and then he, um, they had to go to church. Uh, that, was, that was another thing. They would have to go out and walk two miles a day, two miles a day every day. And then they had to go find that person who was worse off than they were, who could not pay them back, from whom they could take nothing. And they had to go work for them two hours a day. When I, uh, I, I can remember I was when I was on the north side of Indianapolis and I was counseling people who would show up at my office and I, um, I, when, they, when they were ladies and, they, and they, they swore they couldn't find anybody to do Christian service for, I would send them down to the woman's club at Wheeler's Mission on Thursday morning. And the, uh, these were women who lived in houses which were, you know, well, in Indianapolis, maybe... Half a million, seven hundred and fifty out here. Who knows? Maybe a million and a half or something like that on the north side of Carmel. They they were not working outside the home because their husbands were, you know, prosperous, and they and they were just not satisfied with life, and they were unhappy, you know, and just life was just not serving them in the way that they thought it should. And so I sent them down to work with mothers who were on Medicaid, who didn't have half the teeth in their head, who had three kids, sometimes by three different fathers, who were living in a homeless shelter, and I made them do it every Thursday morning. And you know what? They went home in the evening, and they could appreciate their husbands again. Yes, just because of the stark contrast between what they had 
and what other people had. So, I, I, so Christian service. People who struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder need to do Christian service. All right. Well, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, you can follow me on Twitter. Questions. Let's, let's do questions now. Yes. And I'm going to rotate quadrants. You're next. <laughs> no, let's start there. I'll start in this quadrant and, come, and you're next. Okay, yes. Well, uh, to know that there is a causal relationship between taking the psychotropic medications and the school shootings is difficult. But there certainly is a um, temporal relationship. You know, the, the real trick in medicine is uh, things related in time are not always related in, by cause. And so it's hard to say if there is. But I can tell you this. In every major school shooting that we have seen uh, since the uh, Columbine, uh, the, uh, the young people who did it were on um, either an SSRI antidepressant, a Adderall, and or a atypical antipsychotic. And all of these things are known to cause bizarre thinking. Uh, the last one you, you don't hear very much about, and we may never know what medication he was on because, uh, you know, he's dead, his mom's dead, and there's a HIPAA law. Um, but it, I, it's my understanding that he was, he was being treated, and I also know that he sat in his basement on a long-term basement on a long-term basis and played computer games where he killed people. And that, that was what he was doing. Um, the idea that uh, these medications can make people think bizarre thoughts is widely documented in, in the literature. It is not talked about much. Uh, what do you hear about Chantix? You guys know what Chantix is? Yeah, it's a failed antidepressant. And it is supposed to, it works, it's supposed to work by uh, uh, fiddling in your brain and making you think that you're taking nicotine in when you're not so that you can get far enough away from smoking cigarettes so that you can quit, which I think in some ways is a laudable thing. I, and I, I prescribe it, uh, but there is a downside. And, he, and if you listen to the commercials on television, what do they tell you? If you develop what? Depression or suicidal thoughts or unusual thinking, like wanting to kill your mother-in-law. <laughs> yes, I, I can remember reading one article about um, the, um, a, a young man who killed his grandparents, who he said he loved. And he said, from the day that they put me on my antidepressant, I had this irresistible, unavoidable thought in my head about shooting them. And that's what he said. Of course, you know, you, might, you can say, well, that's, you know, jailhouse uh, uh, confession, uh, uh, something convenient, but quite frankly, you hear it over and over again. Conf I, I have a cousin who had uh, herpes encephalitis for a while, headaches, and she said that the doctor put her on Prozac because at that time Prozac was supposed to cure everything. It was supposed to help you lose weight, make your headaches go away, all kinds of things. Uh, of course, what we found out is actually that if you take Prozac over five years, you're going to gain 15 to 25 pounds, and it probably doesn't do very much for headaches. But my cousin said that from the moment she started taking it, she started thinking about killing herself. And she had never thought about, a fine Christian woman, never thought about killing herself before in her life. Fortunately, she went back to her doctor and told him, and he took her off of it instead of doubling the dose. Um, yeah, and so the answer to your question is, yeah, I think there's probably a, a connection. Uh, difficult to prove. Um, I, you know, the solution is for us to raise our children differently. There you go. I can, you know, somebody will say that's a simplistic answer, and my answer to that is no, it's the right answer. And some, I didn't say it would be easy, 
I just said it was the right answer. Raise our children differently. We raised our children differently before, and they came out differently. We raise them differently now, and they are coming out differently. And the only people who can't see that are people who do not want to see it. Off my soapbox. Okay. Um, Over here, there was... Yes, right. Relationship between the two. uh, Well, I don't know that they are mixed. And I don't know that someone who has real honest-to-goodness obsessive-compulsive disorder has bipolar disorder. Neither do I think that someone who has manic depression has obsessive-compulsive disorder. The real problem today with... um, diagnosing in psychiatry is that all kinds of people who are doing it who don't know what they're doing. And I say that in kindness. And the reason why they don't know that what they're doing is because they don't know what the criteria are and they don't often use them. They're, in my book, I talk about the fact that half the doctors in the country who are diagnosing people with depression don't use the dsm four criteria to make that diagnosis. And many of them don't even know them. Um, and what's even worse, they think they're far better at making the diagnosis than they really are. You know, that, that, that's, and to me, that's what the hazard is. So when someone says you have this and you have this, my response to it is, is that, I, well, I would question that. I think a really good book, uh, you know, I, I think I said this earlier, Brain Lock. If you want to know something about obsessive compulsive disorder, buy Brain Lock and read it. It's by Jeffrey Schwartz. Not a Christian, but it's a, it's a, a good book. I don't agree with everything in it, but I, a lot of it is valuable. All right, so here. Yes, I'll be happy to. I thought I told you guys to write that. No, no, just kidding. (laughs) All right. This vision is not real. Are you ready? This vision is not real. This vision will not hurt me. Whatever God allows into my life will be for my good and his glory. And perfect love casts out fear. That's 1 John 4, 18. All right. Got it? Got it. All right. Okay. It is time. Yes. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.